Please turn with me to the book of John, chapter 1. We'll be studying this morning, verses 19 through 34, as we continue our worship. But to begin the time, I'm actually going to read a few verses from the passage last week, and then I'll read verse 19. And then verse 34. So just listen and try to jump in where you can in your own copy of God's Word as I get to verses 19 and 34, the beginning and ending texts of our passage this morning. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And then verse 34. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. A clear theme there. Every year since 1927, the editors of Time magazine have agonized and collaborated to feature a person of the year. Now, this is someone who, according to their own words, for better or worse, has done the most to influence the events of the year. And as you would expect, naturally, having done that for almost 75 years, at the turn of the century, they decided to put together a a feature piece released on December 31st, 1999, that would actually commemorate the person of the century. The top three spots were filled by Franklin Roosevelt, Mahatma Gandhi, and the ultimate winner, Albert Einstein. Now, hands down, there's no one in the room who can deny that these were some of the most credible and impactful men of the century. Their thoughts and deeds were indeed the stuff that impacted the entire world. And people listen to them. When FDR, for example, said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself and then rallied America into war, America listened. When Mahatma Gandhi exhorted his people to be the change you want to see and spearheaded peaceful revolution for the sake of freedom for India, over a billion Indians listened. And when Einstein exclaimed his theory of relativity, the scientific community, I narrow it to them because I don't know what it is. But it seems that they listened to his genius. These men were competent and they were credible. And though not a single one of us in the room has ever met them personally, we think they're worth listening to. And so the testimony of John the Baptist in the first century would have been to the Greco-Roman world. If Time magazine were in existence in first century, John the Baptist would have been one of the top three persons of the century. Now that could seem overstated to you. 
You could think, no, he's this obscure guy that's in our Bible. He's not that popular of a religious figure. You would then be underestimating his importance to the entire Greco-Roman world. The man's popularity was unparalleled. In fact, Jesus said of him that there was never a greater man who lived. And that seemed to be recognized by those who weren't even Christians. Flavius Josephus, for example, was a historian around the time of John the Baptist and Jesus. He wrote a little after them. And in his annals, he actually devotes more time to John the Baptist than he does to Jesus. Much of what we know of the first century world came from Josephus. And even this credible man said that John the Baptist was, in effect, a force to be reckoned with. We even see it in the narratives of the Gospels. You ever notice like how Matthew and Mark and Luke and John devote so much attention to John the Baptist? In fact, the way Mark starts his summarized gospel, he doesn't even mention the incarnation. He opens and hinges the credibility of this person, Jesus Christ, upon the fact that John the Baptist testified to who he was. You would think, no, 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 if you really wanted to prove who Jesus is, you're going to talk about the incarnation. And yet the gospel writers were sold that all they needed to really reference was John the Baptist. He had followers all over the known world at the time. As you begin to read through the book of Acts, for example, you find that there are, are followers of his ministry all the way in Ephesus. In fact, we find him in other extra-biblical accounts as well. He's referenced in the second century Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of the Ebionites, the Gospel of the Nazarenes, the Proto-Evangelium of James. He's mentioned in the writings of Justin Martyr, Tertullian, uh, Hippolytus, Origen, and early church fathers who follow the gospel accounts. I mean, this guy is all over the place in first century literature. And he is someone that people would indeed listen to. And here's the point. If you would listen to and be persuaded by Gandhi, Roosevelt, and Einstein. You too should listen to the testimony of John the Baptist concerning Jesus. Don't immediately think because it's from the Bible you would expect it to say that. In fact, John's John the Beloved, John the writer, John the author, the apostle. He is setting up this whole thing to point to belief in Jesus and his transition from the theological opening into the historical validation is none other than you need to listen to this guy. He knew what he was talking about. This was the Son of God, according to John the Baptist. So you see that if you're just looking at your own Bible, the reason why I read those passages this morning, you're like, why does he keep mentioning John? Just get on with the good stuff. Let's talk about what really matters. But remember, friends, for John the Beloved, that's what I'll call him, for John the Beloved, John the Baptist matters. He's credible. He's a testimony, a witness. The word that is used repeatedly throughout this text that I emphasize through the reading is none other than that which would be used of someone giving credible eyewitness testimony in a court of law. It's as if you here will read and hear for yourself John's testimony as a credible witness concerning who Jesus actually is. And this is to do a couple things for us. It is either to produce faith in this Jesus if you haven't yet believed in him, or it is to strengthen faith in this Jesus if you haven't yet believed in him. Uh, practically, friends, the, the reason why this matters is because uh, some of us seem to be always confident and sometimes right. We speak with authority on a bunch of stuff that we really don't know that much about. I think I saw it more than ever over the last two years. 
as people would listen to some news pundit or some talk show host or some internet news feed or some lifestyle blogger or some grocery aisle tabloid headline and then start arguing with other people over how convinced they are on things like vaccines, economics, politics, child rearing, investments, diets. I mean, we just, we really know what we're talking about in these areas because an expert told us. Always confident, sometimes right. But then with the gospel, we're kind of like, well, I mean, I've heard it said that I don't want you to be offended, but Jesus is the, he's the only way, the truth, and the life. Like, if you don't believe, well, I don't want to hurt your feelings. Actually, I'm not going to tell you right now. Do you see the contrast? Always right, sometimes confident. You know why John the Baptist is featured so prominently here? So that you would be right about Jesus and confident about being right about Jesus. So we do well this morning to listen to his testimony. The great thing is, it's presented in the form of a story. It falls into three scenes. I'm going to call them scenes, not acts. Acts are the larger meta-narrative. This is one story, three scenes. For you note-takers who just can't listen to a story, I'll give you some labels to hold on to. Scene one is the interrogation. We'll see that in verses 19 to 24. Scene two is the redirection. We'll see that in verses 25 to 28. And scene three is the validation, which will bring up the remainder of the verses 29 to 31. This whole thing kicks off with an interrogation. Look at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When, here's your background, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now notice this, John the Beloved, remember I'm calling him the author, John the Beloved, sets the testimony in the context of a narrative in which he is responding to a delegation of Jewish priests and Levites from Jerusalem. All you need to know about this is that these guys coming from Jerusalem are coming from the political and religious establishment. Jerusalem is the political and religious capital of the entire nation. So it it is communicating something that uh, the powers that be of that day sent a delegation of individuals to come and actually investigate this John the Baptist guy. Now, John doesn't have to, John the Beloved doesn't have to give us any background information on John the Baptist because he's so well known. He's just a figure that everybody would have known in that particular culture and time. And so he says, look, John is already well known. And so the religious authorities are suspicious of him and they want to know exactly who he is because he's concerned them. His ministry has kind of like messed up what they thought was their unique monopoly on the power structure of the day. Why are they concerned? Well, one, John the Baptist's ministry insulted Jews. John was out there preaching, telling people who were like true, blue-blooded Jewish people that they needed to repent and actually repudiate their old lives and come under a new way, a way that he is preaching and teaching. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you, but if you were born like thinking, because I belong to this family, therefore I am automatically in right standing with God, and somebody all of a sudden comes along and says, no, you're not, that's a problem. So they didn't, he was insulting Jews in their opinion. He was preaching individual repentance and faith. He wasn't just saying, go to the temple, go to the priest. He also preached contrary to the popular way. He's actually saying here that, look, you guys are on the outside of things. Even though you go to the temple, even though you give your sacrifices, you're on the outside. You need to be on the inside. 
And this threatened naturally the political powers. Uh, They are concerned because this guy is also saying that he's preparing all of his followers for this coming in another gospel. He calls it stronger one who will come and lead them into God's new kingdom. And they're like, what? There's someone stronger that's coming on the scene. There's some new ruler. There's some guy that's actually going to come and exercise this power and authority. And not only does John say, is this a one-time deal? He's saying this is the end. This is the the, the last day. (laughs) Uh, I am going to, through this preaching ministry, prepare you for the final coming of God himself. And here's the deal. All this offensive stuff means nothing if he's just some loser out in the wilderness. But he's not. He's popular. He has an immense following. In fact, he is so successful that they think that he is some kind of old-time prophet. Like, end-time prophet, excuse me. He's this eschatological hero of some kind. I went... I want you to kind of imagine the scenario this way. Uh, This is totally unrealistic. But it is as if John uh, would be like a figure who has parked himself on Ellis Island at the height of the immigration and said, I know the American government says that you will become a citizen this way, but here's my sign. Come my way and you can become an American citizen. If you want to be a real American Listen to what I'm saying. Don't get in the line. Come out here. So naturally, the authorities are like, excuse me? (laughs) So they are provoked. Who in the world are you to do all this stuff? Because a lot of what he was doing lining up with what they expected, but they thought that they were going to be the focus of the party, and it seems that he is, at least to start off with. So John responds to them. They ask the question, who are you? And look at verse 20. He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. (laughs) Notice that. that. They think that he's obviously a big deal. He's either the Christ, that's the chosen one who would be anointed by God, who would come in and basically kick butt, take names, rule over the world on behalf of all the Jewish people. He's like, are you that guy? And he's like, no. And then he says, oh, no, no, okay, well, you must be the Elijah figure. Remember when we were studying in Malachi and we looked in chapter 4, verse 5, and it said right before the day of the Lord comes, there's going to be this guy who's like Elijah? And he says, no, I'm actually not Elijah. Now, that confuses some people because Jesus in other gospels would say, this is the Elijah figure that was promised in Malachi, which shows two things. One, John didn't even understand the significance of his own ministry at the time. Jesus did. And the second thing, John is also trying to be crystal clear about one expectation of the day, that that Elijah was going to come back down from heaven bodily and bring in the kingdom, and yet Malachi 4 was clearly referring to the spirit of Elijah, not necessarily the person of Elijah. So the point is, he deflects on the Elijah thing as well. And then the prophet, we read about him in Deuteronomy 18. Remember, this was embedded in the Torah, and they were saying there would be this one special prophet who would come, and he's finally going to fix everything that's broken with you guys. And they said, are you that guy? He said, nope. And you could tell that he's getting kind of short with them because he first says, I am not the Christ, and then he says, I am not, and then the last thing he says is no. (laughs) As he gets shorter every time. And so he's responding to them, but then I, I want you to notice that they, they then get exasperated and they said, okay, well, don't play defense, play offense. You tell us who you are. Look at verse 20, 22, excuse me. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us, the religious authorities. What do you say about yourself? And this is all he says in verse 23. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So here's his proactive testimony, and he says, I am none other than a voice. It was read beautifully for us earlier, Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11, that 
that prophetic passage par excellence. You, you know what Isaiah 40 is all about? For the original listeners to that, they were held in captivity in Babylon at that particular time. And Isaiah tells them, hey, good news, God is coming back and he's going to deliver you from this hell hole that you find yourselves in known as Babylon. And here's what you need to do. You need to prepare for that by making ready for God to come. Straight into paths. And they use this analogy of like fixing a road for a traveling king. And he says, get ready for him. And Mitch did a good job praying this way. This is basically, we're not talking about roads, we're talking about hearts. Get your hearts ready for God to come back and to fix it all. And you know what Isaiah 43, when applied to John the Baptist, is saying, I am the one who is getting things ready for God to come back. Get your hearts ready. I'm just a voice. I am not the coming eschatological end-time hero and figure. I am getting you ready for him. So hang on. Humble up. Make sure that you are prepared for the one who is to come. And then look at verse 24. He leaves it at that and says, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. If we were reading the book of John all the way through, this is going to be an intriguing little point because it's like introducing you to the villain before you ever know that he's the villain. Uh, the political structure of the particular time was basically you had this body called the Sanhedrin. They were allowed to rule under Rome. The Sanhedrin is something kind of like a mix, in my opinion, between uh, the Supreme Court and Congress. Uh, that There's... That that's kind of their authority. They're, they're political, uh, they're religious, and if we're using the Congress metaphor, uh, the dominant position, uh, the people who had the most seats in that day were the Sadducees. They were like modern-day liberals. The Pharisees were kind of like modern-day conservatives, but they were uh, religious conservatives. They were actually like rule followers. In fact, Their party platform was, we will get people ready for the coming kingdom of God by introducing to them extra rules so that we can make sure that they are really ready. That's the best way I can explain it. And those guys in particular, even though they didn't have the seats in the house, they did have the popular vote, and they were threatened by anyone who would not follow their way of bringing in the kingdom. And so you get introduced to these guys that are going to be a challenge for John and a challenge to Jesus, not for him, but to him throughout. So it's clear, you've got this interrogation, scene one, but we transition. John capitalizes upon their dogged insistence to know who he is by redirecting them from himself to a coming one. Notice that, which brings us to scene two, the redirection. Scene one interrogation, scene two, redirection. Look at verse 25. So they ask him, then why are you baptizing if you were neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Remember they're asking him like, okay, who gave you the right to put a sign on Ellis Island that says you can become a true follower of God this way? And you know what John's special way was? Like the thing that really stood out, he preached repentance, but not only did he preach repentance, he called on people who repented to be baptized. Now for us, who know that there is a baptistry like hidden behind this screen here, it's not a big deal. You're like, oh yeah, of course, they're going to get baptized. But for a Jewish person in the first century to be baptized made zero sense. Zero. I mean, there were some things like rituals in the Old Testament that talked about ritual cleansing and getting yourself clean before God, but nobody ever was immersed into water and pulled back out again. But there was an interesting practice that had developed over the course of the last 200 years. The Jewish people, they had a religion and they wanted to propagate it. If you wanted to become a Jew like them, traditionally you needed to be circumcised. But because of all this emphasis on ritual purity, remember their tendency to make up new laws to make sure everything was really covered? They came up with a new one. They said, hey, you don't not, not only need to be circumcised, that only covers the dudes. Let's actually make it so that everybody can show that they're becoming a part of Judaism. So let's start like having people dip themselves entirely into a body of water to show that they were really dirty and that their old life is gone and that the new life is beginning. 
So they, pro- they practiced proselyte baptism. If you wanted to convert to Judaism, some people would say, hey, on top of that, you need to go down to the river over there, and if you're really serious about this thing, you're going to get under the water and come back up again. But notice something. They did it themselves. What John does here is he is basically pulling from this tradition saying, you are indeed dirty and you are filthy even though you were born Jewish and you need another figure to actually like signal that you are preparing yourself for a different king, a different ruler, a different authority. Therefore, repent and be baptized. And then he actually took the responsibility to baptize them, put them under the water and bring them back up again. Now, this is different than Christian baptism, but John is basically saying, hey, I want you to disown your old identity, and I want you instead uh, to, to follow this new one underneath my leadership as a recognized prophet at this particular juncture. And I want you to know, friends, <laughs> if you're going to tell the Jewish people that there's some other way to be a Jew Quote Ricky Ricardo, you've got some splaining to do. They want to know, what, who are you if you're going to call on them to be baptized? They still think that only some strong prophetic figure like this could be the one who would actually have the authority to pull off a baptism like this. And yet John was doing it. He was preparing them as a new community. And listen to his answer in verse 26. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Notice this. They keep wanting to ask him about his authority. What gives you the authority to baptize? And John, in effect, says... Who cares? I'm just baptizing with water. All I'm trying to do is get people ready for one that's greater than I am. You think I'm something. Wait till you see the one who is going to come after me. You get the point? He's saying, yeah, indeed, I am, I, I am actually doing things different than you guys do. I am preparing people for something different than what you are preparing them for. But at the same time, It's not about me. It's about one who's coming after me. If you think I'm something, look to this greater one who is to come. In fact, if you think I'm amazing, he is so great. He is so powerful that I am not even worthy to untie his shoes. Now, that sounds humble in and of itself, but you need to understand something. That in that particular culture, the only people who would ever get down on their knees and unstrap someone's sandals would have been the lowest of slaves. And that is the lowest job because their shoes get way dirtier than your, your shoes do. And just imagine an agrarian culture, and I think you can get the picture. And yet, even the lowest job of the slave, he says, I am not worthy to do that for this guy. So, do you see the redirect? Listen, you've made this about me. You think I'm the one that's got the authority. I want you to look somewhere else. So negatively, this sets up this great suspense. Because think about it. Here's what's going on in the story. None of their questions are getting answered. They still don't know who this guy is. All he's saying is you need to look out for someone greater than me. And so we move to the next scene. The validation. Validation. The opening interrogation clarified who John the Baptist was not, but it hinted at the identity of Christ, right? It said, I'm preparing you for the way of the Lord. And then the ensuing redirection took John the Baptist's popularity uh, as, a, as a signpost for this one who was to come. And here in the final scene, we're going to actually hear, we're at the point now, hang with me, where John's testimony is going to blaze its way off the page in full force. This is the validation of Jesus as the Son of God. Look at verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After he comes, a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. The suspense in the air from the previous day only hangs around for about 24 hours. 
Because as John continues his preaching ministry and his baptizing ministry, what we know from the other gospel accounts is that Jesus actually approaches him and there's this interchange that's not recorded here in John in which John recognizes who he is, he baptizes him, and at that particular moment, uh, the text of, of the other gospel writers notes that the Spirit of God descends on Jesus as a dove. Now, uh, let's think back to your grammar classes and your writing classes. It doesn't say the Spirit is a dove. The Spirit descends as a dove. This is a simile. It is a, as a comparison using the words like or as. It's not saying the Spirit is a dove. But what it is actually alluding to is the Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament. We see him in a couple of different instances. First is in Genesis 1-2 where it says that he's fluttering over the waters. He's brooding over the waters. It, it is this idea of like this is God's raw power that, that doesn't just sit in any one spot. It flutters about. And then there's just those additional uh, promises that are there of this, of this one who would actually come as a, as like a bird and descend upon uh, the Baptist. And he says that he came... He descended upon him. We saw that the Spirit not only would land on him, but would also reside with him. And in light of this, John felt the freedom to declare Jesus as none other than, and here's the great phrase, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here he is. You want to know who this guy is? It's the Lamb of God. I, if, if, this is good for you for your own personal Bible study. If you ever want to study a phrase of the Bible and you want to like milk it for all it's worth, let's say you're going to lead a Bible study with somebody. You're like, how does this guy get up here and speak on like seven verses for an hour and a half? It's not that long. <laughs> all you got to do is pay attention to each word. Let's do it here. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, let's just start off with the most obvious one, lamb. What would those people initially have thought of when they heard about a lamb? They would have considered the lambs that were regularly slain as a sacrifice for atonement. In fact, it was back in the book of Exodus when they were told to prepare for their, their deliverance, their salvation. They're going to get out of Egypt because God's going to pour out his wrath through these plagues on this particular nation. And here's how you're going to escape the wrath. You're actually going to take this lamb into your house that's going to live with you or on your property for four days. And then you're going to slaughter it. And you're going to take its blood and you're going to put it on the doorpost. And when God sees that the wrath has already been exercised on a substitute, he's going to pass over you. And so that lamb, from their very beginning, became a picture of this substitute who would take on God's wrath so that his people could prosper and be saved. And this symbol had been in operation for a really long time. And so he says, look, this is the lamb of God. Notice that. Not a lamb. But the lamb, the lamb par excellence, the lamb better than any other, the one who is actually of God, the one who is sourced in God. This is God's solution for sin. You had a human, I mean, excuse me, you had this creative kind of substitute that was assigned to point ahead for thousands of years, but now you have the reality that God himself has provided. It's the lamb of God, listen to this, who takes away. The word takes away just means to lift up. It means to carry off. It means to remove. What does he do? He takes away the sin of the world. Sin is, is that which we do that offends God. It's basically living in God's world but doing it our way. It's rebelling against him. And so those who have rebelled against God, all those things they've ever done, that, that horror scene that comes to so many people's minds of, of like everything they've ever done being like captured on film and then being displayed before God one day. Those things, the, those files, if you will, of all the ways that you have offended him, like they're there. And he says, he's going to take them away. He's going to hit the delete button. He will wipe it off the divine hard drive. And not just sin, but the sin of the world. What does he mean by the world? He means all kinds of people, not just the Jews. 
Listen, if you're here today and you weren't born into the right family, guess what? That lamb's sacrifice covers your sin too. So he validates Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, this is the greater one you were looking for. This is the one who, even though he was born after me, is before me. Like, this is the divine Lamb of God. And that's not the only thing he validates of Jesus. Look at verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, that's God, said to me, so God spoke to John, and that makes total sense, by the way, because he's a prophet. You would expect a prophet to hear from the voice of God. And so God speaks to the Baptist and says, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And look at verse 34, his grand conclusion And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John saw it. It alluded to that Genesis 1-2 passage that we know well. And also the the Noahic covenant. You remember that the the dove was the harbinger of new life and salvation to come. Like he he sees that the Spirit descends upon him. But notice it doesn't just descend, it stays And in the Old Testament, friends, we have all these uh, pictures of people who would be empowered by the Spirit, but it was always temporary. Do you remember when David prayed in Psalm 51? If those of you who have grown up in church and you've prayed that prayer over and over again when you mess up big time. But there's that one disturbing line in there that says, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And if you read that through a New Testament lens, you're like, what in the world? I can sin to that degree that God's going to take his Spirit away? but that's an old covenant passage. The Spirit wasn't promised to permanently indwell all who followed the Lord. This is a privilege of new covenant saints. And he's saying that this one is actually going to permanently have the Spirit. And listen to this, mind-blowing. It's easy to overlook, but this is a big deal. He will perpetually dispense the Spirit. John baptizes in water. He immerses people in water. You know what happens? They get wet. But when Jesus immerses people, he puts them in the very life of God. He soaks them in God's power. They say no to their old life and yes to a new life that will be divinely empowered by him. John will make this crystal clear, by the way, throughout the rest of his gospel on what the Holy Spirit will enable you to do. But everybody knew that at least the Holy Spirit gives life and he gives power. And so Jesus is the one who would give life and he would give power to his people. And in light of this, in light of what God said, look out for this one upon whom the Spirit descends. And John saw that the Spirit descended upon this one. And so in light of that, he logically concludes and then officially testifies, and this is the climax of the narrative, this is the Son of God. John speaks better than he knows, by the way. There's uh, another instance of someone speaking better than they know in uh, John chapter 12, where uh, one of the high priests is going to speak about Jesus dying on behalf of the people and saying, basically, hey, this guy's going to die and it's going to put down the unrest of Rome and we're not going to have a political anarchy uh, situation on our hands. But he didn't realize when he says this one dies to like save an entire community that is actually something bigger than that. When Jesus, I mean, when John the Baptist says that Jesus is the Son of God, I don't think he fully understands everything about Jesus being God's Son. All he knows is Psalm 2 said that the Messiah would be like a Son of God. He would be the Son of God, this one who has a special relationship with the Father, and he's going to come and rule and reign. And he would probably identify him with Isaiah 53, this sovereign servant who would come and suffer and die on behalf of the people. But here John, he gets it. And John, the beloved's readers, would pick up on the full import of this. No, no, no. This is the Son of God. 
official testimony from a credible prophet. He has spoken. And so as Einstein spoke on physics, and as Gandhi testified for freedom for India, and as FDR directed through the attacks of World War II, so also John the Baptist, another mere mortal, testified to the deity of the Son of God. It is Jesus. And we should believe Him. That's it. You should believe Him. You should trust Him. You should, you should count on that. Someone has spoken officially on the matter. And in light of that, there are two primary things that we should be resting in, clinging to in light of John's testimony. First, is that this one that, that John testified to is the divine solution for sin. Hey, we're in the home stretch. Hang with me. One, he's the divine solution for sin. And second, he's the divine empowerment for life. He wants you to believe it. It's official. What does it matter to us that Jesus is God's solution for sin? Well, friends, uh, it's official. John the Baptist has told us God's solution for sin has already came. The Lamb of God has already paid the sacrifice for sin. Having believed in Him, listen to this, you are clean before God. His wrath has been fully satisfied in Christ. I love the way that R. Kent Hughes talks about the centrality of the Lamb of God metaphor throughout the Bible. Listen to this. He says, the Lamb is our eternal message. Abraham and Isaac prophesied His sacrifice. The Passover applied the principles of His sacrifice. Isaiah 53 personified his sacrifice, and John 1 identified the sacrifice. And it's magnified in Revelation 5, 9 through 14. The sacrificial death of Christ, this is the essence of our message. Uh, Friends, I, I pray that you would be more confident about the fact that the Lamb of God has atoned for your sin before a holy God than you are about politics, or globalization, or vaccines, or political issues of the day. This should be working knowledge for us, and it should lead to real joy. Your sin has been fully taken care of by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is something that happened outside you. It is something that he himself has already accomplished. He's already done it, and it's satisfied. It's done. It's checked off. One of the most beautiful testimonies to me in all of, uh, of church history is none other than John Bunyan. I mean, the man struggled with sin immensely, and yet he was converted at what seemed to be for him like out of the blue. This is his own words, and they're beautiful. It's two paragraphs, but again, it's Bunyan. You can, you can read and I mean, listen and, and, and benefit big time. Notice how he's just so resolved that this thing's taken care of. He says, one day... As I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, fearing lest yet all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought withal, I saw the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ, at God's right hand, and there, I say, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He wants my righteousness, for that was just before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday and today and forever. And then listen to this. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loose from my affliction and irons. My temptations had fled away. All those passages of judgment meant nothing to me anymore because my righteousness was in heaven. Friends, do you hear that? He's saying it's not about my frame of mind. It's not about like how strong I'm believing in the particular moment. The Lamb of God has already paid for every failing of mine. And that is great news. And you should be always right and always confident about that truth. 
There's no doubt. I love the, um, it's coming a newer song, but to me it takes on the flavor of a hymn that we sing from time to time. And it captures this particular joy when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. What do I do? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. It's a good day. Your sin has been satisfied through the sacrificial death of the Lamb, and He has been vindicated, showing that the the payment was fully paid through His resurrection. It's a new day. Friends, I want to encourage you practically as we come to communion in just a few moments to remember that this, this bread and this juice is a reminder of that reality. The elders and I have discussed this on several different occasions. Please do not overemphasize as you prepare to partake the introspection and self-examination. Sometimes we look inward so long and so hard that we're like, well, am I worthy to do this? Have I been good enough to partake? And the whole point of communion is to point you away from yourself into the person of Jesus. You're to be looking at his broken, be- his broken body, his shed blood. It's a righteousness that's been provided outside of you, one that you merely receive by faith. And this has a practical impact. If you um, were to see my car back there, it looks horrific. It is, it is, it's supposed to be a silver car, but there's these yellow streaks just all down the car from that, I'm assuming it's pine pollen. Help me out, Cullen. Yeah. And you know what? Because I can't park my car in my garage right now, and that's my own fault. Yeah. Um, I don't even want to wash it. I see how dirty this thing is, and I see like how contaminating the environment is, and I'm like, I'm going to wait till this thing's over. So somebody clue me in. When I stop seeing yellow stuff floating down from the trees, I'm going to start washing my car again. And, and all of you have had a similar experience. Some of you may be a little more OCD than others, and you're washing your car all the time, but I've just given up because I'm like, look, if the thing's dirty, I'm just going to let it stay dirty. But you know what happens when the pollen finally clears out and I go take that thing to the car wash and I spend the 15 bucks to get it clean? I want to keep it clean. Friends, some of you have just bought into this lie from the pit of hell that you're just still some dirty, rotten old sinner even though you're trusting in Jesus. The Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world, including yours. You are clean. Now live like it. Believe that. Argue that with your friends. It's a fact. John not only validated that Jesus is uh, God's solution for sin, he also validated that Jesus is God's empowerment for life. Did you listen carefully to what God the Father said through John the Baptist, just like the prophets of old? He says, hey, when you see the Spirit descend and remain on this one, you're going to know that he's the one that immerses people in the Holy Spirit. Any who will be identified with this one will be plunged into the Spirit of God and thereby enjoy a divine enablement that only a few people in the Old Testament ever knew, and then even only at few moments of time. And yet here, he says, no, no, no. This one will actually enable the life. The Spirit of God now permanently empowers and supernaturally enables obedience and service. I think, friends, that sometimes... um, (laughs) What the work of God has done in us has made us something like a a high-performance sports car. And we view ourselves as some broken-down old beater. Sure, you in and of yourself are nothing. But 
you understand that, that Jesus not only died, but he rose again from the dead. And Paul applies that to our struggles in sanctification and trying to live a holy life. He says, hey, uh, Christ, in Christ you died, but in Christ you've also lived again. And because of that, you enjoy this same supernatural enablement. You have the power to live the Christian life. I know some people, and you may even be here today, you're like, I don't know if I really want to follow Jesus. Y'all seem to take that kind of seriously here. I don't know if I can live up to that. Indeed, you cannot, but Christ through you can. He's the one that actually enables the obedience. He's the one that immerses in the Spirit. He's the one that connects you to the divine life of God. You can in Christ on account of the Spirit. There is enablement for life here. And so, friends, I think we need to be reminded that we're not only clean in the past, but we are capable for the future. We can do what Christ has called us to do. We walk in the Spirit. We keep looking to Christ as God's solution for sin and empowerment for life. We understand that He's given us this Spirit, and the same Spirit that empowered Him empowers you to start a godly home, to model the gospel in your marriage. The same Spirit enables sexual purity. The same Spirit fends off materialistic cravings. The same Spirit moves you to radical good works. The same Spirit emboldens gospel witness. The same Spirit grants endurance in suffering. This same Spirit enables service to the saints of this church. This same Spirit can slay any temper or overcome any anxiety. This same Spirit can enable gospel advance. It can fuel generosity. Whatever it is on your wish list for King Jesus, the Spirit will enable you to do. And that's a fact. An authentic witness of God himself told you so. Believe it. Otherwise, you'll never behave it. So, dear friends, guests, church family, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the one who immersed us in the Spirit of God. Behold none other than the Son of God. I love the way one old Puritan put it. He said, for every one look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Stop focusing on yourself, your past, your performance. Let's look to him. Let's behold him. not in him I would encourage you to look to him in faith turn from your sin today and follow him if you don't know what that means talk to one of us before you leave if you're already in him let's keep looking to him